We continue our series this morning of Love Letters from God, and I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and I would ask you to stand this morning as we read the scripture together. I will start, before I actually read the text that I'm preaching from this morning, we're going to start with our key verse for our entire series on the love letter from God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nehemiah 1, 1-11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night, For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled... People are at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice and let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us, opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. You may be seated. When I was eight years old, I attempted to write in a diary every day. I got the diary for Christmas in my stocking. I loved it. And for the first two weeks, every day, I was writing something. Dear diary, today was great. Love, Jennifer. It was fabulous. And then one day I got busy and I stopped writing. And to this day, every time I have tried to have a journal, I do it for a couple weeks, and then I just quit. 
But the, the reason I have always wanted to journal faithfully is because when I read the diary of Anne Frank in third grade, I wanted to do what she did, leave what I was thinking and feeling and experiencing for those who might want to understand my experience later. Well, the book of Nehemiah is an example of that kind of writing in scripture. It's a journal of Nehemiah. It's a story of his being in exile and finding out that his home country is in shambles, not that that was unexpected, but that they needed help. And then going by God's help to take care of those things. In Nehemiah's journal, we see over and over the same thing that we read here in the first chapter. Everything that occurs in this journal happens in the same sequence. There's a situation, Nehemiah prays, and then Nehemiah acts. Here he fasts and prays. Next, the king notices him, and before he speaks to the king, he prays. Then he travels to Jerusalem, and he prays before he talks to the people there. He faces opposition. He prays. He gets offers of support. He prays. People are in need. Nehemiah prays. Throughout Nehemiah's journal, what we call the book of Nehemiah in Scripture, the same order. Something happens, Nehemiah prays about it, and then Nehemiah acts. And the reactions that Nehemiah has throughout the book are set up through this very first moment. When Nehemiah hears of Jerusalem's issues, he weeps, then he mourns, fasts, and prays. He is seeking God's face before he does anything else. He is waiting to hear from heaven before he moves forward. He starts by fasting, taking attention from his needs to turn everything he has to God. Then he prays, and if we take the prayer he has written in his journal as a template, his order of praying is pretty helpful, even to us. He starts with praise. I was at a conference this past week for several days, and the host led every morning with a devotional. And he talked about an experience that he had that led him to start to approach life by being grateful, even when things were really, really hard. And he talked about how he had to find ways sometimes to be grateful at first. But as he continued to live his life that way, it became easier. He became grateful just in the regular course of doing things. And sometimes when we're in those situations, when things look bad, when things are hard, when it, think, it seems as though nothing can or will ever work again or work out the way it needs to be or should, when we have an attitude of gratitude, when we're grateful for what we have, it reminds us that God is who God is. And Nehemiah here is heartbroken. And he doesn't necessarily see a clear path to fixing the situation that he finds himself in, but he praises God for who God is and for God's faithfulness up to now. He says it this way, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. 
I wonder sometimes what would happen if every time we were faced with a difficult situation, we started out with praise. What if we remembered God's faithfulness even when it seemed as though God wasn't being faithful in that moment? When we express our gratitude even in our misery, it changes us. And we begin to see a little bit of hope because we can find all of God in grateful expression. The next thing Nehemiah does is Nehemiah confesses. Nehemiah recognizes that the gulf between what is happening to his people and what he would like to see happen has opened because of the faithlessness of the follower. The sins of the people have made it impossible for them to hear God's voice, for them to follow God's way, for them to be faithful to the covenant that God has set up to protect them. So Nehemiah confesses that to God and admits that whatever sins they have done, they've all been sins against God first and foremost. I want to say Nehemiah seems like a pretty good guy. His first response to something that's negative in his life is to turn to God and pray. It seems like he's been pretty faithful. He serves as a cupbearer to the king. That's not a job you get by being a jerk or being disloyal. But Nehemiah confesses. He recognizes his own limitations and weaknesses And he calls them out to God as a confession of his own human vulnerability. God asks us to recognize our sinfulness in the same way. We are asked to confess and repent when we miss the mark that God has set up for us. We are blessed as Christ followers to have the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us. The Holy Spirit helps us see our sinfulness and to desire to live more outside of that, to not live in our sin. But still, every week as part of our communion liturgy, we confess our inability to do what God has called us to do and our lapses. We confess that we do not love God enough We do not love our neighbors enough. And it is when we confess that, that we become vulnerable enough to recognize our limits and God's limitlessness and the ways in which we cannot measure up short of the grace of God that pours out on us through confession and repentance. You see, God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. Scripture tells us that when we are weak, he is strong. And it is through our confession of our weakness that we recognize God's perfect grace as the power we need. We cannot get grace unless we confess our need for it. The last thing that Nehemiah does in his prayer is petition. After he's praised God for who God is and he's cleared his heart and mind, then he carries his burden to God and says, this is what I need you to do. 
He asks God to give him favor in the presence of the king he serves. He recognizes God's power in the situation, and even though he is not sure what God will do, he asks God to give him success and favor. As I said before, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. So he is in the king's presence on a regular basis. But he is not at liberty to simply speak his mind or ask for things. The king of Persia has ultimate power in this situation for him, and he can't just bring his petition to the king of Persia. Just as a quick aside, it's interesting how the king of some country in our world can somehow garner this kind of respect where we know we can't just ask for things. But we know we can go to God, who is the king of the universe, and ask for things. But the only reason we can do that, the only reason we can do that, is because we approach the throne with awe and humility, but we go through the blood of Jesus. We go because we have been set free by the Christ who loved us, by the Christ who saved us. We can go with boldness because Jesus made that possible for us. God does act on Nehemiah's behalf. And the king notices Nehemiah's disposition and asks him what's going on. Again, Nehemiah breathes a quick prayer. And he tells the king what he wants. And in the rest of Nehemiah's journal, we read how God answered his prayer over and over and over again. All kinds of things happen. The country came to national repentance. They celebrated God. They went through a series of all kinds of things. But it all started with Nehemiah's prayer. With Nehemiah's pouring out all of himself in front of God. God didn't just set it up so Nehemiah's petition to the king was granted. God worked through that request and Nehemiah's faithfulness to finalize the work Nehemiah wanted to do. God worked in the hearts and minds of those around Nehemiah over and over. He gave Nehemiah wisdom. He gave him strength. He gave him helpers. God was at work. And and much of what Nehemiah personally experienced and wrote about seems kind of far from what we need today. We don't really need a temple or walls around our city. But, But we do face opposition from those around us sometimes. We face challenges in doing the work of the kingdom. We face challenges in our families and homes and hearts. And we, like Nehemiah, can put those things before God and trust God's faithfulness to be at work. God expects us to ask for these things even though God knows them and sees them. God wants us to seek him as Nehemiah did with gratitude and confession Before our petition, our hearts and minds and attitudes need to be in the right place so that what we are asking is no longer about what we want, but what we need. So often we confuse wants and needs. 
But when we put ourselves in the posture of gratitude and confession, things begin to be clearer and we see what God can do to address our need, but not necessarily in our want. God may move you when you want to stay somewhere because you need to move. God may keep you somewhere when you want to move because you need to stay. God may expect you to act where you want to be still, or God may expect you to be still where you want to act. In all of those things, if we are obedient to God's work on us and in us, God will move. Make no mistakes, my friends. God will build the kingdom. God will walk with us through challenge and heartache and hardships. God will move. God will move. So now, as we have been doing every week in this series, I will remind you of what it looks like to say that the love of God is found in every page of Scripture. That is what we've been doing through this series, going through every single book and looking for the ways in which we can see God's love revealed to us. So what does it mean to say God loves? God loved us enough to create us, to form us from the dust. God loved us enough to let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. God loved us enough to provide a rescue, a way back, through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. God loved us enough to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. God loved us enough to show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up, and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. God loved us enough to send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. God loved us enough to see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. God loved us enough to raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like him. God loved us enough to want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. God loved us enough to still let us choose our destiny. God loved us enough to promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week most tangibly as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love.
So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.